start with refuge. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. So on Thursday nights, we have been exploring the poem by Hongzhou called Silent Illumination. And last week, we explored the line about too much illumination and then aggressiveness appears or illumination without serenity, then aggressiveness appears. So today we're looking at the other side of that, too much serenity, what happens? And Hungzhir says, but if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. Murkiness leads to wasted dharma. So serenity and silence, or silence, sometimes translated as silence in this um, poem, like illumination that we explored last week, is an aspect of awakened nature. So that's one, um, one thing that Hongzhou is pointing at during this chant over and over and over again, reminding us. And last week I talked about, you know, really the um, silence and illumination are really two fundamental principles of, you could say, the universe or the mind. And, and so it has that yin, yin and yang principle. And so Hong is really like talking now about the more relative aspect of how they're in balance or can get out of balance sometimes in our, in our lives and also in our meditation practice. And then also in how we, how we think about the Dharma and talk about the Dharma. So I want to just remind us, because I think it's always important to remember like how silence is already present and is something that we have access to all of the time, our serenity. And maybe because, especially because our days are often filled with activity and sometimes stress and anxiety, judgment, and, you know, this seemingly mundane details of human life that we can get really um, caught up in and forget, forget the essence. I think that's why we come back to meditation together is for, and come back to retreat and, you know, come back to silence, even if it's just quieting our own, <laughs> our own voice and letting the body get still because we're reminding ourselves of the essence. We're reminding ourselves of the quiet, the peace within that we touch for moments of, uh, at a time. But we're, when we take that posture of Zazen, we're enacting that, we're, we're being the, the quiet container that's just allowing, you know, whatever is coming up in our experience to arise. I always love the analogy, and those of you who come to my talks hear it all the time, but that analogy of the sky and awareness being like the sky. So it's that quiet spaciousness of Zazen is able to, you know, hold the movement of thought and the body sensations and feelings that maybe we didn't feel all day or all week that come rising to the surface when we, when we sit down and do a period of zazen. But we're taking that posture as the quiet space. And sometimes 
we're vividly aware of the quiet space and sometimes we're more aware of the content that's flowing through the mind, the sky-like nature of mind. I think we can't talk enough about how we come to know ourselves as that quiet, spacious nature of mind. And one thing I was reflecting on as I was writing this talk is just how important it is for each of us to know how we access serenity. And I gave Zazen meditation as one example because that's something that we all do together here. But I'm sure that each of you have other ways that are part of your you know, daily routine or part of the ways that you unwind that provide that sense of serenity, of quiet, like being in the natural world or mindful eating or gratitude practice, but also dance and exercise and listening or playing music. There are so many. There are endless ways to access silence, serenity, the essence. And what are your ways? Dharma gates are boundless. We chant when we chant the four bodhisattva vows. What are your Dharma gates? And they can, of course, always be changing, but usually we have some, some access points that maybe we've had our entire life. And sometimes maybe when we get busy or um, other aspects of our life take the front seat, we forget about those things or neglect those things and then can feel a little unmoored because our access point to, to serenity, to peace, to peace of mind has, has deteriorated and we need to rediscover it. I was thinking today, it's quite windy in Portland today, and I was thinking how for many people, nature is, is just a way of connecting with this piece. And since I've moved to Portland and I'm in the city, I have been finding myself just like taking refuge in the bamboo in my backyard and um, the tall trees that are in this city and the sky. Um, but I was thinking, you know, today it was such a, a windy day and, and nature can be really violent. There are earthquakes and there are volcanoes and there's floods and there are storms. But still, it's, it's, you know, it's a human thing to find nature peaceful. And as I was watching the bamboo sway in the wind today and just like clatter against um, the fence, I was recognizing like, oh, even though that is a somewhat violent experience, there's also just this like give and take in nature. There's this like harmony, like the bamboo isn't resisting the wind or saying like, stop wind. Like I need to just be still. It's bending with the wind. And so of course there are more violent things that do happen in nature, but I was also recognizing just that quality of nature that can, that can bring a piece, a a sense of serenity because you're witnessing just this kind of organic one life responding and and reacting to each other not not necessarily as separate beings with their own agenda the wind and the bamboo and as my example 
So when we talk about serenity, we're also talking about the emptiness side of practice. So it's another synonym. If we, if we like expand this view of what is serenity, we're talking about the emptiness side of practice. Um, and emptiness can mean the spaciousness side of practice, but also that the no self side of practice, the, the interconnection, the interbeing side of practice. And when we overemphasize the emptiness side, um, we have a word for that now called spiritual bypassing. And, and that's often like not in the moment knowing emptiness from the inside because emptiness experientially experienced is, is spacious, it's interconnected, it's that insight into radical impermanence, but also the, the emergence, the continuous emergence of life. And so when we, be, when we take emptiness more as a concept, we can start to like take up a nihilistic point of view or a nothing really matters because it's all empty, it's all changing anyway. There is no fixed self, so get over it. A kind of mentality sometimes happens when um, when there's just an overemphasis on the philosophical side of emptiness or a more conceptual side of emptiness or experimental or experiential side of emptiness where you may have had an experience of just like whoa like nothing really exists the way I thought it did or wow like the mind is so vast and spacious and things just flicker in and out, in and out, in and out. What is there to hold on to? So we may have experiences like that, but then we can take them and um, apply them in kind of confused ways, not coming from the experience anymore, but like a memory of the experience and how we're trying to interpret it into everyday life. And Sometimes an overemphasis on emptiness can lead to avoidance with uh, engaging in social issues or interpersonal conflict in relationships or challenging uh, experiences that arise in one, one's own being. Because they can be like, well, it's all empty anyway, it's all changing anyway. And, and then neglect to really look into, oh, what are the implications of my actions? How, are, how is that affecting my relationships, how is that affecting others, how is it affecting the world. So illumination in this chant, one definition is curiosity. So when Hongzhou says emptiness without curiosity leads to, to murkiness, when we have curiosity in relationship to difficulties that arise, then we have the ability to stay relatively calm and spacious in the midst of adversity, but also the ability to look into oh, what's actually going on here and to track and to stay engaged and responsive to um, all the, the challenges of life question of like oh how what is arising here how do I experience it in my body 
What is the wisdom of this difficulty? What am I learning from this experience? Those of you who have studied with Hogan Roshi know that's one of his favorite questions. What have you learned? But it's a way of like even, even deep experiences that we have of no fixed self, we're, we're bringing in that element of curiosity and allowing it to integrate into um, our experience of, of also being a, a human being <laughs> with feelings and thoughts and ideas that flow through, but also you know, make us who we are. So another definition of serenity can be the dark, the unknown. And last week, I realized I was praising not knowing. And I think that's because culturally not knowing is really underemphasized. But it's also possible to get kind of attached to not knowing and, and stop participating in life or or making decisions and we can let ourselves get overwhelmed and then choose to withdraw or to numb out or to space out now a little bit of this might be medicine and so hunger is not saying like oh you always need to be in balance he's saying no you will go a little too much on one side and a little too much on the other side and here's what you can do when you're going too much over but a little bit of numbing out and spacing out might be good medicine. And so watching a mindless TV show one in a night or in a week, scrolling through social media, taking a nap, letting your eyes close during Zazen and just like really just sinking in to the darkness, really just doing nothing for a little bit, just sitting in your chair. Sometimes I do that now that I'm living in the city, I just sit in my chair and I like look at the wall Like, I just need to look at the wall right now and like let the thoughts just go through. So that can be healing, unstructured time, letting, you know, just letting the body come back into, letting the parasympathetic nervous system come back online, breathing deeply, not having, you know, not just not thinking about things and and unwinding in in a way that whatever supports us in doing that. But if we do too much of that, and we usually get feedback, if we do too much of that, we might not feel so good. And Hungjir says it this way, like, too much serenity is murky. And I think we know this murkiness in many different ways, perhaps as low-level depression, perhaps as a disengagement with life, perhaps as hesitancy or indecisiveness. How do, how do you experience murkiness? And is there a situation in your life right now, if you can open up and feel into your life, is there a situation maybe at work or in relationships or around a decision you need to make that feels murky? Maybe aspect of spiritual practice, we have so many dimensions to our life. Is there anything that feels murky? And call it to mind.
And let yourself for a moment experience that murkiness and feel what it feels like in the body. What is the feeling tone of murkiness? Are there thoughts associated with this particular murky situation? What kind of thoughts? For me, it's often that feeling of like, oh, I don't know what to do, and there's a negative feeling tone to it. I should know what to do. If murkiness could move, how would it move? Really get embodied with your murkiness. That's one way of recognizing it, is amplifying it for ourselves. Like, ooh, murkiness. And now that we've explored murkiness, just a little taste of it, I invite you to connect with the quality of illumination, curiosity, interest. What does that feel like? Feel how illumination or curiosity feels in the body, interest. What is its feeling tone? Are there thoughts or emotions associated with curiosity? And now, how would it feel to bring some of that illumination, curiosity mixture into the murky situation? To let those energies dance a little bit more. Not coming in with a like, you shouldn't be feeling murky, just wake up. But like, what would it be like to be curious about the murkiness or curious about some aspect of it that you might not have been before? Or just to feel those energies in relationship a little bit, touching each other, dancing together. One question I like for when I'm feeling murky, and I got this from um, Lama Sultram, is if you do know, if you did know what you wanted to do, what would it be? I'm working with somebody right now who's um, working with mindful eating and just doesn't know what she likes to eat. And so I like to ask, well, what if you did know? Because sometimes it invites the unconscious who we've kind of been ignoring to like have some space to, to imagine. And sometimes an answer comes forward. If there was a way to resolve this conflict, what would it be? And just be open to the question and see what arises. So practicing silent illumination, and this is something I feel like emphasizing now, isn't about being perfectly balanced. It's more about being in relationship to the range of experience. So getting to know our murkiness as well as our aggression like we did last week. And then knowing and having the tools to, you know, bring a little bit more 
illumination into that murkiness and a little bit more serenity into that aggression and see what happens when those energies dance. One translation in, in a lot of a line from the Tao Te Ching is, in the darkness, darken further. And I've always loved this because it's not saying like, get, or, get rid of the darkness, turn on a light, bring illumination into that darkness. But it's an invitation to, you know, sometimes the only medicine for working with murkiness or low-level de depression is to embrace it. And that's where it needs to start. We, need, we often can have like a, a I don't want to feel this way. So, and so then there's this like rubbing up against it, resisting it. And so then like the invitation, no, instead of applying these remedies, first start with acceptance allowing it to be there as it is. There is much to learn in both working with the light and the dark. And like I said last week, this is endless pra practice. We could spend the rest of our Dharma lives just working with these two dimensions of reality. And probably do. I mean, there, another translation of silence and illumination is emptiness and form, and that shows up in so many different ways in the koans. And, you know, all of these paradoxes or apparent paradoxes that we encounter in practice, you know, have that, have some dynamic of that polarity, that essential polarity of light and dark, or um, illumination and silence, emptiness and form. One teaching from Chosen Roshi that has always stuck with me um, in working with polarities and working with koans is she says you need to like take each side both and neither so in our example it'd be you know be the darkness completely know that know the murkiness completely but then also know the illumination completely Know the brightness, know the knowing, know the arrogance that comes with that and the aggression, know that completely. And know both. Be able to step into both. Be able to dance both. And then let them all go and know neither. And this is, you know, this is the freedom of Zen. No fixed position. The ability to move freely with whatever is arising to learn from it and to move on and not get stuck in one role or one identity or one view i as i was writing this i was thinking of Thich Nhat Han because i think he's such a beautiful example of a human being who knew emptiness so deeply but lived a very engaged full, rich life, constantly evolving the teachings for the West. He wasn't even a Westerner. It's, I mean, he's a pretty amazing person. But in my heart, also, we've lost a lot of big energies in the last two months. Bell Hooks, Desmond Tutu, Meladoma Somme, and people who were spiritually evolved. And I've been thinking, like, my first thought when Thich Nhat Hanh died was like, oh my gosh, they're all leaving us. Like, when's the Dalai Lama going to leave? And then I remembered Thich Nhat Hanh's um, teaching 
that the future Buddha is the Sangha. And I've really been reflecting on that lately, that, that, that it's each of us, like maybe this next generation, we can't rely on like these big named people to come out and be Buddhas, like we all need to be. And we all have that capacity. And I like to think about that. So thank you. Um, thank you for being a Buddha with me and being a human too. <laughs>